Hey, welcome to In Light of the Gospel, episode 22. I'm Dan Blatz, and today I get to talk to my brother Neil from Alberta. Maybe that's the reason why, but I feel like it was perhaps one of the most exciting podcasts for me to record. Uh, I was very much involved with Neil as he became a Christian, and as he went from being a a rugged individual bachelor, tough and rough and rough around the edges kind of man, to seeing him get genuinely, drastically born again and living his life for the Lord and getting married, settling down, having kids. Uh, you know, it's just been a beautiful thing to behold. I hope you stick around to the end when he starts presenting the gospel and sharing how he got saved and what it took for him to finally see. I think you'll be blown away by the truth of what God can do for an individual. It, to me, I look at his life and, and many others as well, but because I was so intimately involved with him when he got saved, it feels like this was clearly God. Like it wasn't him. It wasn't me. It wasn't the preachers that were preaching at him. God stepped into Neil's life and just turned things around on a dime. And it's been a beautiful thing to behold. You know, nobody, nobody's a finished product here. God will complete the work. He's begun a work and he's going to complete it, going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. But to see what God has done thus far is a very beautiful thing. So thanks again for tuning in. Thanks for sharing and liking these videos and subscribing to the channel. It's been a real joy to do these things and I hope that uh, you're all blessed by them as well. Here we are. Sitting with my brother, over three thousand kilometers apart. What is it, about thirty six hundred kilometers to? I'd say it depends if you go through Canada or the states, but we're kind of stuck in Canada. Yeah. So I might be off, but I think it's a little closer to four. But thirty six hundred might be might be right. I know we made the trip to Alberta several times to Edmonton, and it was around thirty six. But then we went through the states. So I don't know, man. It it feels like you've been in Alberta pretty much forever. Obviously, I remember us growing up together, but. Um, I was more, I guess I was with Jamie more as a, as young kids. No, with Joe, obviously. Um, but then during our teenage years, we did end up hanging out a little bit together. But you yeah. were, uh, I think you had a bit of a reputation in our family of being the black sheep. <laughs> well, maybe sometimes I felt like a black sheep and that's what led to that. But um, I don't, I wonder sometimes if it was to be different. I don't know. Okay. Just examining now, looking in the in the past, right? At the time, I don't think I thought of it, but looking now, does it was it to be different on purpose or because I felt different? Um, maybe I felt different than everyone. So then you just kind of uh, emphasize it, unintentionally emphasize that, right? Yeah. Well, I remember um, in uh, probably I was grade one, I think. I don't know why I remember this, but we were living at Woolleyville, where George and Mary now live, and uh, you got glasses. So we started and the neighborhood started calling you four eyes and that would uh, rile you up some and, uh, you know, fighting and wrestling and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know, you, maybe because you were right in the middle, seven boys, you were exactly in the middle, right? Yeah. And you maybe didn't quite fit with Pete and Aaron and George, and maybe I didn't quite fit with you. And it seemed like you kind of got that reputation in the family of being the black sheep. That's the impression I got. Maybe I'm way off. Right. And I feel, like I said, I feel like I felt that way. And um, part of that is, that's why I work on my children so hard. About, um, if I see them feeling sorry for themselves, it can be a dangerous pitfall to fall into. Sometimes maybe it's justified, but I think a lot of times too, it's just um, uh, a child screaming out for attention of some, uh, in some, some way, right? 
So I think maybe as a really young child, I felt sorry for myself a lot. Being in the middle, I always felt like, oh, the older kids can do everything because they're older. And then I go like, parents would say, well, they can go because they're older. And then it came to something else like, oh, no, they're younger than you. So mm-hmm. I always felt like I feel sorry for myself, right? And rather than, so, and I'm sure they did the best they could. I'm not um, um, trying to be hard on them at all. But having children of my own now, so if I see them maybe feeling sorry for themselves, um, I don't necessarily, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't necessarily feel sorry for them with, with them, but I try to draw that out of them, bring them out of that. So they're not thinking of themselves rather than thinking of other things. So I think that uh, that might've been part of it. I well. see. I, I mean, you can identify with it, right? Like we now have seven children as well. And Megan is right in the middle. And uh, so there's the oldest two girls that are 18 and 17 now. And Ezra is 15. The, the oldest two girls think Ezra's cool and fun. And he's, you know, he's, he's a nice guy to be around. And then Megan is only 13. She just turned 13. And she's in that transition stage where she thinks she's just as big and as old as the older girls are. And they don't think she is quite. They get along really well. Like our older girls work really hard to make sure that they include her and all that kind of stuff. But I could easily see how she could become that independent, you know, like nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm not, I can't be with them. And I'm, I don't get the advantages of being a young kid. I don't get the advantages of being the old kid. Why do I have to be in the middle? So I can see how that could build someone's character a certain way. Right. Yeah. Like I said, I've often, I often thought of when I was a kid, like I remember a, a few times being in the backyard, just sulking, thinking nobody likes me, which is ridiculous. Obviously, um, me and you got along. Usually we, we wouldn't hang out that much, but I don't think we really had an issue. Me and Pete usually got along unless one of us got angry. We both had a little bit of temper problems, <laughs> but we usually got along. But you get in that mindset, right? And a child can very easily get in that mindset, I think, because where nobody likes me, poor me. I mean, my, and really that is selfishness in a sense, right? I think is the world should revolve around me and I need more attention. Absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I don't want to turn this into a psychology session, examining our family's <laughs> principles and, and all that. But <laughs> right. I, I remember mom often sticking up for us. Like if we got in trouble at school, we get in trouble. And then we knew that, okay, this principal or this teacher, she's going to get in trouble. Like mom's coming in private school. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, she, she did it out of love and care for us, but it probably didn't benefit us that much to be, to be guarded over and watched over that way. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. Some, there's something to, uh, to uh, learning um, respect and lessons from other adults as well. I think that points or even other people your age, if uh, maybe sometimes you're asking for something, I don't condone violence, but. Sometimes maybe you were asking for something and then rather than somebody else sticking up for you and getting you out of the situation, it's probably helpful for you to learn a lesson or find your own way out of a situation. Mm-hmm, for sure. Well, another thing that often I think of, um, you and I both were hanging out with Abe Berg at one time. You and him were pretty well best friends, it seemed like. And then I came along and I started hanging out with him a lot. And I, I forget you were off somewhere doing some other things. So I was with Abe a lot. And then I got bigger and stronger and I was working out. And then one day you and I wrestled. Uh, I was 16 years old and I beat you. Abe Berg okay. was so proud of me and he was just blown away. And so I'd, I'd like to have kept that memory alive and just kept it at that. That would have been the better story that I can beat my older brother. And then you went off to Alberta and did all this jujitsu nonsense and I can't do it anymore. <laughs> oh, it's all just fun and games though, right? Well, you know, it's interesting that you remember that. It's so interesting what we remember, but um, I, I do uh, slightly recall that as well. And uh, 
it's funny how I felt different after that than how I did after you came to Alberta. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, it's good. Anyway, this whole independent thing that the reason why I bring that up is because you moved to Alberta. What is it now? 20 years ago or more? Yeah, I think um, I want to say when the first time I came to Alberta was 2000, maybe. I wasn't sure, but I saw the first Alberta plate I had, and it had a 2001 sticker on it. So it would have meant I bought the sticker, the plate in 2000. Wow. And yeah. and before that, even like when you were living in, in Ontario still, I remember you, for some reason, all of a sudden you became a cowboy. Like you were wearing a cowboy hat for a while, driving a Honda Civic, wearing a cowboy hat, <laughs> right. doing the cowboy boots and pants and everything. And then you got right into, you did the whole rodeo thing a little while. And then when you went off to Alberta, maybe I'm getting ahead of the story. You went into the mountains and did all that kind of stuff, but there was this independent uh, streak in you. It seemed where you were not going to fit the mold. You weren't going to be like everybody else necessarily. And you ended up being by far the oldest in our family to get married where everyone else got settled down at 1920. Jamie was maybe 24 or something. But uh, you took quite a while to finally settle down. So I don't know what you would attribute that independent uh, mindset to besides being the, the black sheep or something. I'm not sure. Right. Again, I would probably lead to psychology. If I were, like you said, we'll kind of leave that alone if you really were to dig into it. But there's that. And um, I do remember um, Pete having a big influence on me. As independent as I seemed like maybe I was at times, I really looked up to our brother Pete. I think uh, as we got older, we got along really well too. And um, like, yeah, it's numerous things. It's that black sheep thing. It's uh, reading little more books. Since I was a kid, I wanted to be a cowboy, right? And uh, like you said, I uh, started dressing like a cowboy before I was one. And then I started rodeoing. And that was the reason I initially came to Alberta is the cowboy lifestyle, right? So I moved to Alberta to, uh, to cowboy. And the first job I got here was at a horse ranch. And, um, yeah, I completely changed my life, right? After I came back to Ontario, I didn't stay long and I was back here again, but, um, I don't know if, I don't know if that was necessarily the, the mindset was to be independent. It was just a, a pa- more of a passion when I was younger, right? Okay. This was what I, I said, since I was a kid, I remember reading a lot of Louis Lamore books and books like that when I was younger and I enjoyed them. I really did, but it wasn't so much the the hero of the story I took away from the story I took, what I took away is the guy riding the range and being by himself and, or checking cows or living off, you know, making a living off horseback. That's, that's what really stuck in my brain. And that's what I wanted to do. Well, for me, that kind of stuff sounds neat. And I, I appreciate men who are like that, but I can't imagine being so independent or so distant from people sometimes. And, um, I don't know, like, even when it comes to like getting into trouble, maybe I, I wasn't a good person by any means. I was a sinner, no doubt about it, but I tried really hard to do what was right. You know, I went to church all the time. I prayed my prayers. I never drank, never smoked, never got high, never slept around, didn't do any of that kind of stuff. I even didn't, I didn't even dare to drive recklessly or to spin my tires. Like I was, I just didn't, I felt like, I don't know if it was a consciousness of God or if it was just a desire to please man, maybe a bit of both. But I noticed that many of these things didn't seem to affect you. I mean, if you ever talk to Pete Clausen, the flooring guy, he has stories about the way you drove. Maybe he's exaggerating. I'm not sure, but the way you drove and the, the party life a little bit, things like that. What, why would you have been that way? Um, I, mm, 
that wow, these are deep, deep questions. Um, you know, when I was younger, I remember going to church and there was moments I really had a conscience, but even at 14 or 15 years of age, I think I quit going to church as much. Somehow I was able to not, to not go with mom and dad. And, um, there was moments in my life I really had a conscience, but there's a lot of times I just, I felt like nothing, it didn't bother me. I don't know how that happened at such a young age. Like my conscience at times didn't bother me. And mm. um, so to get in that lifestyle, like I didn't usually feel bad about it. Again, there was times, especially as I became a truck driver and there was times I'd be on the road myself. And then if I really just quieted down and I was by myself and started thinking, I turned the radio off. Um, that's when I realized oh, I was still human, right? I did still have a conscience and things would bother me. And then I'd, uh, I'd really want to do better for a bit. But as soon as, again, there's noise around, um, and maybe that's, no. Yeah, as soon as there's noise around again, I would, uh, it just, none, none of it would bother me. Interesting. And I don't know where that comes, I don't know where that comes from. I can identify with that to some degree because I've often shared with people that I, I can't remember a time in my teenage years growing up before I got saved where I was ever just in silence by myself. Like I always had distraction uh, and yet somehow my life didn't turn out the same as yours necessarily, but I didn't want to think, I didn't want to be by myself and just ponder. So when you think back now, say someone asked you to share your testimony, where does it typically begin? I would say my testimony begins um, with you getting saved, um, a lot of questions started coming up then. Right. And obviously I was, uh, vehemently opposed to it because of doctrine. So I just stepped back a bit as well. Um, I just want to add to not having a conscience. So I think when I did things, if I, if there were things I didn't do sometimes, it was not so much of because I was scared of what God would do, but somehow mom and dad instilled some things in me that I shouldn't do it. It wasn't so much of a, a, rela- a relationship with God thing. It's just like, I knew this was wrong because mom and dad said it was wrong. And sometimes it didn't bother me. But anyways, going on past that. Um, so after you got saved, I was back in Alberta. Um, I started, uh, for the first time in my life, I think, I started quieting down. Um, I was by myself a lot more. The last time I came back to Alberta, right? Um, I had a lot of time to think, and that's when I just really pondered. I was a little bit older already, right? I was in my, well, older. I was in my mid-20s already, early to mid-20s when I started thinking about things. So I wasn't mature, but I had a little more maturity behind me. And then you start taking life a little bit more seriously. And you think back to all the things you did. And then you're also selfish. You think about people you may have hurt. And um, things, maybe things that could happen or maybe things that did happen. And then one thing led to another, I think, was um, God working in me maybe through, again, maybe must have been because you got saved because you you talked to me, but you never, um, but I knew people before that got saved, but the way they came at me, I, I'm not saying they were wrong, but it didn't work for me. Like the people um, that were meeting you outside in the street corner in Elmer, um, in your face, for me, it did not work for me at all. No. It made no. me feel... Uh, yeah, it never even touched me. Like it, it made me be, I wouldn't say more rebellious. I was really rebellious. So I can't try to take that credit away from myself. But um, yeah, so after you got saved, you just, you would talk to me. You'd still be my friend. We talked about normal things, but you bring up Jesus because Jesus was just part of your life now, right? You weren't not going to talk about him. 
So then, yeah, being by myself, uh, so driving truck at times or working in the mountains. You were up um, way up north at one time out in La Crete, um, high level. Yeah, that comes a little bit later, actually. That's just before my salvation. Oh, okay. Salvation was, but working in the mountains was a big one, right? So I, uh, even out here working on some cattle ranches, I was always with some other hands or something. There's people around, dogs around. Um, it was just a busy, <clears throat> somewhat of a busy life. <clears throat> so it wasn't as much time to think for myself. But going up to the mountains, um, working in uh, front outfitter up in the Wilmore Wilderness here in Alberta, um, I wrangled horses. So I didn't go up, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I didn't so much help the hunters as I took care of horses there. So I spent um, probably a month and a half um, and 90% of the time was by myself on a horse in the mountains. So there's a lot of time to think. Um, by yourself. What, what, like, what do you mean by yourself? I remember you talking about this once. What Describe what that was like. So here's how it went, right? So we had about 55 or 65 horses we brought up. So what we did, we uh, we sold um, sheep hunts, wild sheep hunts, and we had moose and elk and things like that as well. But a sheep hunt was the big one. We bring hunters up, and then the horses, because it's such rough terrain, you can't use the horse, same horse every day. So we had uh, many horses in there that have rest days, and then you switch out every day. But you also can't bring in enough feed for all of them. So you'd have to uh, let them go so they could go graze, find their own grass. But if you don't bring them back in every day, they just start going, uh, spreading farther and farther out, or they don't get used to coming back. So every day, um, so that, sorry, the guides would take the hunters out and some other wranglers would go with them and help them out. But then every day we would let horses out in the morning or in the afternoon, sorry. Um, we'd let them go and they graze all night. In the morning, I would get up, I'd chop firewood, I'd make a fire or whatever. Um, if there was a, happened to be any hunters in camp, um, and then I would saddle up before breakfast. I go out and so I get the horse in for night for myself. I go out and find the horses, round them up, bring them all back to camp. And they could have scattered up. quite a distance by that time. Yeah. Later on in the year, they'd scatter further. Right. So every day we would feed them. So they'd know, oh, we get feed here. And then after they're done being fed, you'd let them out and scatter again, or keep the horses in you needed for the day or for the next day. Interesting. That's what you do is a lot of time was just on horseback riding mountains and looking for horses. So what they had is like the cowbells on their neck you put on before before you let them go. So you would listen for for the ringing of the bells. I see. And you kind of got used to where they were, right? But as I said, later on in the season, they'd, they'd ride further and further so your days would get longer. And also, uh, if the supplies need to be brought in from the road, you'd keep a couple horses back to make a pack string. You'd, load, you'd uh, take them to the road and from the trailer, load up their pack saddles and bring them back in. And so like- all of this was done... By myself three four five days dry ride one way or something crazy no from the camp from main camp to um the road is two hours about if you're by yourself our furthest uh camp from there i think was about eight hours from our main and you you said though that sometimes there would be a several days stretch where you wouldn't really see people yeah so our main camp is where the base camp we called it so that's where everybody would come in and meet and then there was um satellite camps everywhere else so the hunter new hunters would come in I get them from the road as well as, as supplies that come in a uh, wrangler or a, a guy would come back and take him, take him out to a different camp and they'd be hunting and they got some, some supplies maybe. And then there'd be nobody in camp except the camp cook, which was the boss's wife. Um, but so I'd see her quite a bit during the day, but then there'd be, yeah, sometimes there'd be days where nobody would come to camp and just be us. So I'd be 
doing the horse thing or picking supplies up or chopping wood. So it was a lot of living the Louis Lemoore cowboy life, eh? Right. And it got lonely, but I loved it, man. I loved it so much, but man, that got me thinking that gave me a lot of time to think, um, start thinking about my mortality, start thinking about God and who he is. And, um, there's times like you weren't under on a time clock, right? So there's times you're up there riding, looking for horses and you see a great view because you're like five, 6,000 feet elevation. You just stop and uh, pick at your horse and just sit there, grab a snack and just look. And, think. <laughs> and it was great, but it was also very, uh, you got very introspective at the time, right? You look inside and that started bringing about the consciousness that I think I never had since I was a kid and started bringing, bringing about um, an awareness of my sin. Uh, by no no means was I, did I get saved or was I um, saved at the time. But at that point started made me start to think about um, where I was in life, my standing with God, who God was, and the things I'd done, like I said, the people I'd hurt maybe. So wow. that was all the other wranglers. I got very fortunate. All the other wranglers went out with other hunters. And somehow I stayed back at camp by myself. I don't know if it was um, intentional or what it was, but it was the most important time of my life. It was just... Uh, amazing what that time did for me interesting well, i remember yeah. only ever catching catching up with you every few months because sometimes you're out of touch and we, there wasn't not everybody was carrying a cell phone back then and it was a different time but i remember yeah, at the time we didn't have cell phones there yeah they had they had one satellite phone but they were so expensive they were used for emergencies wow so if I talk to anybody i have to, to ride into town I remember the very first time I came to Alberta to visit you there and we made our trek to the mountains. We went to Banff just to, to see it. And I don't think you were with us at the time we went there on our own. And it just, I, I, I had never imagined seeing anything like that. I don't know what it did something to me, right? That morning I had read in the book of Psalms and I can't find the passage right now. It says that uh, a loose translation of it would be thy righteousness is like the mighty mountains. You know, and seeing those mountains and feeling so incredibly dwarfed and in awe, I can't imagine anybody living in that terrain and that in those mountainous views and not considering their mortality and seeing that. Look how big this is. Look how grand it is. Look how puny and tiny I am. So it, it feel I feel like seeing those kinds of sights. And another one that did it to me once years ago, there was a girl uh, that said to me something about the lake in in Leamington about how massive it was. And she just said, imagine how many people, she wasn't speaking morbidly about dead bodies, but she just said, imagine how many people you could fit in this lake. And it was just, it stunned me. I'm like, that is really, really, really big. And it's not even an ocean. And so to be in the mountains and to consider the the grand creation that God has made, I can see how that would dwarf you and make you feel more introspective and see like, what significance do I even have? What What's the purpose of my life, right? Right. Right. So I did come back to Ontario after that. I came back to visit. And through circumstances, I ended up staying for over a year. And um, again, my life didn't change at all. I was still very much a sinner, very much a, a partier. Um, and I'd like to blame it on hanging out with the wrong people. But sometimes I think if I look back, that maybe my friends hung out with the wrong people. <laughs> right. So I often hear that like, you hung out with the wrong crowd. But I was, maybe I was the crowd. Maybe that was the problem. We had uh, Ike Dyke, right? Hung yeah. a lot. He, um, he can, he can lead a crowd. Yeah, that's right. But I can't blame it on him. I can't blame it on uh, Hayne Martins. We're still really good friends. Me and Hayne, we talk and uh, I can't blame it on any of them. So yeah, I can't, I can't say that I hung out with the wrong crowd. It's, it wasn't the crowd's fault. Um, 
but the, the whole crowd did kind of keep that company, right? There was a lot of partying and drinking. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So that didn't change me. But then when I came back, I did feel guilt sometimes because like I said, I had that, I had that uh, time to reflect there in the mountains and um, I would, uh, I would, I would definitely feel guilt. So I was there for, Oh, I don't know what it was a year and three months, a year and six months. And I moved back to Alberta. And that's the last time I came back. I haven't left since. What was that? Was that 2003? Oh, I'm bad with numbers. 2000. We got married in 2002. So I don't know if that helps. And I was there at the time, right? Yeah. So I'm not sure what year it was. It was around that time, 2003, 2004, maybe. I can't say, don't take my word. Sure. That's when yeah. I, came, I moved back to Alberta. And um, I have. I haven't moved back to Ontario since, but you came back for a couple of winters and you ended up finding yourself a wife to take back to your mountains and all that. But yeah, yeah. Okay. I went back the one winter to work to, uh, cause I got laid off. I was working concrete at the time. So I quit the cowboying ways. But I thought, well, I'd like to buy land on my own. And, um, so I got a job that I didn't like, but, um, I came back for the winter and worked for you guys. That was a huge, that was a huge winter, but uh, I was saved already, but not long. Yeah. So I came back to, uh, when I moved back to Alberta, um, I quit. I moved back to Alberta. I didn't really party anymore. Um, I drank. I didn't drink to excess much anymore. I was still a sinner, obviously, but I kind of just, I was quiet and by myself. I became almost a hermit, maybe. Old, old bachelors. When, when we came Which to is, visit you the first time, you and Pete Friesen living together, it was like, oh, you doing? These guys are serious bachelors. Yeah, and I, it's not what I wanted. But it's what I had. I was, uh, I didn't want the life I had anymore, right? Um, I was, uh, I didn't, I didn't, I no longer enjoyed it. And it was, I knew it was wrong. But I also know, I knew stopping it wasn't going to save me. So it's not like I was trying to please God. I just didn't want it. But I also didn't want to just live on my own. But the longer you're on your own, the easier that gets, right? To just, um, to be by yourself. But the harder then, it is to put yourself back into social circles and stuff, eh? Yeah, and I think that affected me even after we're married. It's been a long time. Uh, I think I'm coming out of it now a little bit. I've, it's gotten better. My wife was quite social. And uh, the first couple of years of marriage was tough. Um, I never, we didn't, we still don't go away much. But uh, I never wanted to go anywhere. We're by ourselves a lot, which is not great. Especially if you have a social wife and you have children growing up and they're homeschooled. You need to be social. Yeah, for sure. And also, as a safe person, I think you need to be social. I think um, being. I think everybody needs people. Some people don't recognize it or don't feel the need for it. They don't feel empty or lonely or whatever. But obviously, we all need that balance and the interaction. Yeah, that's right. So the one winter, the first winter was it? The first winter I came back. So yeah, first couple winters I came back in the winter time. So so I was working in concrete. The wintertime would get laid off and I would go up north to haul logs. And the first winter, um, I went back up with Pete Friesen. We both went up and worked for the same guy. We switched uh, sh- shifts on the truck. And the second winter I went back up, I worked for a man named Pete Martins. His wife. This, this is wife. now way up north, right? Yeah, this was in uh, high level. So what? And uh not far off of the territories. I thought you would... Similar, similar elevation to the Crete. Right. Or similar, right. 
similar. I, I just remember you saying that you were like 80 miles from the Northwest Territories or something. And that was, you were getting like minus 45 sometimes and you have to step out and fiddle with your airlines on your truck and stuff. Yeah. Like, man, from one extreme out in the mountains to another stream, extreme way up in the Arctic, what are you doing? And I still enjoy that. You know, I enjoy that. Some people didn't like hauling logs. I really, the first year I didn't like it much, but I think it's more the situation I was in. The second year with the, uh, the boss I had and the situation I had, I just, I love that it. it's just doing different things, right? And I still enjoy that. But Pete and Doris Martin, so I worked for him. He offered me better money than the last company. And um, I lived in their basement for the winter. And they were a safe couple. And um, they had a great influence on me as well. So that year, hauling logs, I worked night shift for him. Um, I'll go to the Baptist church. So I'd hear some gospel there. You and I were in email um, conversations at the time. I'd ask you some questions. Um, I believe that's when you sent me the message about, um, being free from sin. And uh, I brought that to the Baptist preacher because I still wanted to disprove you was so wrong. Like, can you believe that? And I wanted to help. So him to help me write a reply to you, right? That I <laughs> free from sin. There's an independent Baptist church up there. His name was, uh, Tom Burrell is the pastor up there. I and I brought that. him a strong email you sent me. And I'm like, can you believe what this guy believed me? He's reading like, yeah, that's pretty good. I got no problem with that. He said, that's good stuff. Right really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, that didn't help me at all. But that winter also, I listened to a lot of uh, The Way of the Master. I don't know if you remember that. They oh, used yeah. a, lot, a lot to convict a person. Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron, yeah. So I listened to that every night. That I had an XM radio. And I listened to the radio show every night. And man, talk about conviction, right? And I really find that helpful, what they used um, to convict a person, using the law as a schoolmaster to bring someone to Christ. Yep. Man, it worked for, it worked for me. If I didn't feel guilty before that, I did then. <clears throat> and But what I found lacking a little bit, at least for me, it did not work, is when they told you um, to how to get saved. All of the repenting from your sin and saying a prayer and ask Jesus in your heart. And I can't remember if they said ask Jesus in your heart. So I can't remember exactly how they said it. But boy, did I try to get saved that winter. I would pray to God to save me. I would repent I, every night. I would repent. I'd be crying in the bedroom downstairs. I think, man, there must be more sins. And there are some wicked sins I repented to God. I repented to God about. And then in the next night, I'd think, man, I remember another sin I didn't repent of. There's it's more. Just, and I don't feel any different. I didn't have a big experience. I need to. I need to make sure I'm saved. So I beg God, please save me. Right. Hmm. And um, so all that winter I lived in anguish. I love the job. I love the people I work with, but um, working at nighttime, hauling logs and just listening to radios. I just, I was living in anguish. It was, it was horrible, but it was, it was a wonderful time in my life. I felt so much, so much guilt and shame, right. Which is what we should realize. I remember hearing Isaac Dyke, he didn't get saved until he realized he was a sinner. Well, I definitely realized I was a sinner before I got saved. I always knew I was a sinner, but that winter, I realized how much of a sinner I was. I shouldn't yeah. say how much of a sinner I was. I realized I was a bad sinner, but I realized how bad it was in God's eyes. Right. Right. That That's for me. Like, I knew I was a sinner, but when I recognized that what I had done was actually a great offense to God, even though, you know, based on many standards, I was a pretty good person. 
when I saw how offensive my sin was to God, it was really deep. And so, you know, Paul says that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, but the law is for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers and whoremongers and all that kind of stuff, right? So mm-hmm. the, if the law is used in that way, it is piercing for sure. And and the way, way, com- the way Ray Comfort would do it was just so basic and simple. Like, have yeah. you ever stolen? Have you ever lied? Have you ever lusted, you know, then you've broken these commands. And then what are you now? You're a liar or a thief. You're an adulterer at heart. Like, oh shoot. So I think that's, that's really effective, but yeah, that's interesting that repent of your sins. It puts all the emphasis on your sincerity on, you know, praying and crying and trying to come to a certain state of heart, perhaps when what, what is required is rather seeing what Christ has done. Right. So, right. So that winter, I believe, actually, I told you I got saved. There was moments I thought, man, I repented enough now. I must be saved. So if I just tell Dan I'm saved now, I'm going to feel better about myself, right? I've done all the right stuff. I've done the right things, right? I did exactly what they told me to do. And I told you I was saved. And um, so I no longer needed to think that, well, I wasn't as bad as the next person, right? I brought that up in church this past Sunday. I was speaking there, and I was telling people, I was telling the children that, um, there's always somebody worse, but there's also always someone better. There's always the one person that says, well, like Uncle Joe, maybe he didn't, he was talking about, I was saying Uncle Joe maybe wasn't as bad as I was. So he could think, well, I didn't do the things Uncle Neil did, or that that Neil did. I wasn't as bad as him. I didn't drink, and I didn't um, have all this sexual sin and stuff. Um, so I'm pretty good. But I could say, well, I haven't... Uh, I haven't raped anybody. I haven't been bad to children. No murder. I haven't murdered anybody. But you know what? I also, there's been somebody better than me. There's Joe is better than me, but there's that big gap. Then there was Jesus, right? Yeah. Jesus yeah, that, can say, I never dishonored my father and mother. Exactly. I always obeyed. That was so basic. I did not eat from one tree in the garden. Right. It comes out of something so basic. Yeah. And so I was no longer need to convincing that, well, I'm not as bad as the next person. No, I knew I was bad. Um, mm. it, it didn't take any more than what I'd done to deserve a place in hell. Yeah. And to, to separate me from God. I didn't need to blame my sin on Adam and, and convince myself that I was a uh, born with a sinful nature and that right. I was born a sinner. No, no. My sin that I had was because of my choices and my actions. That's it right. wasn't that, oh, I really tried not to say, no, no, if I really would have tried, I could have not done it. If I, if there was no other choice but for me to do it, would have been sin? No, no. These are choices I made, and I was a sinner, and I didn't just hurt other people. Now I realize that I sinned against the God, the God that created me, the guy, the God that said, of all these things, of all the trees in the garden you can eat, but of one, of the millions of things you can do, just, just don't do this. And um, I talked to Len about that. He said, so you think if Adam wouldn't have sinned, we'd be sinners? I'm like, so you think, so if Adam wouldn't have sinned, and just theoretically nobody would have sinned before you, somehow I would have been Jesus, you think every time I told you to do something you would have listened to me? You probably would have been the first sinner. Hmm. And the same with me. If nobody would have sinned before me, I would have been the first sinner. I can't blame it on Adam. Right. So what I'm trying to get at, it, it became personal that, I was a sinner. I was the one deserving of punishment. Right. 
Yeah, I think we, you know, I think biblically there is this idea of, I know some people don't like this doctrine, the age of accountability, uh, whether it's an age or a state or a place you come to. But I think everybody needs to have that moment where they recognize that I was the one that disobeyed God. You know, it doesn't matter the state I was born in or the, the country I'm in or the world that I'm in. I personally have offended God. The decisions that I have made, the smaller, great, though they might be, you know, you might think that you're a better sinner than some. I like that illustration that Isaac Dyke used where, you know, Jesus's righteousness is up here and good sinners are here and bad sinners are like right there. You know, I like, use, I stole that from my sermon at church. I use it all the time now. It's <laughs> Sorry, like, Isaac. man, that's like how much separates you really from the bad yeah. guys. Now, obviously, when you look around and you see, uh, you know, a 15 year old rebel, and you compare him to a Hitler or a Stalin or some really, really horrible person, there's clearly a difference. And I think they will be judged differently. And God makes that very clear. But to know that your sin, like uh, remember many years ago, Paul Washer used this illustration where he, he gets into, you know, gets really excited about how God said, let there be light and the light starts shining and God said this and everything is doing what it's supposed to do. And he tells the planets to move this way and the earth to spin this way. And everything is just doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Animals, this is how I want you to be. This is what I want you to eat. Everybody's obeying. Everything's listening. Then he tells Adam and Eve, don't eat from the garden. And they say, but I want to, you know, like so defiant. So we think that we know better somehow, right? And that, you know, some of the other things that God has created don't have choice like we do. They don't have options, which they cannot truly love God the way that we can. But to recognize that we have truly miserably failed him and that we need a savior is the opportunity for us to then also turn to him and love him and to appreciate him. So, Absolutely. So in that sense, yeah, I believe the law is so important in that sense, not the way we grew up to try to keep the law, but it truly is the way Paul said, right? I was alive without the law once. The commandment came, sin revived, and I died, right? Yep. And that was me. Like, I understood being a sinner before that. But that also was a uh, the moment that that law they used really brought a conviction to me and really had me seeking. And I believe if we seek, right, that um, eventually, if you truly are, I believe it came out of the, the the right place. Like, I really wanted to make this up to God. Somehow, I wanted to make it up to God. Because I knew that um, I was in trouble. So it didn't come out of a place of um, necessarily being scared. Of course, there was there's times, if you think at that at that stage, if you think about what will happen to you, you're scared. That's it. But there's something how I wanted to make it up to God. So I came back from the mountains, and I came back to down to uh, where I was living, Hong Concrete. And you started, because I'm now more open to talking to you about the gospel and whatnot, and you would send me some messages, or I'd download them somewhere, and you sent me a message that I was listening to. Um, <clears throat> so I listened to a bunch of these Paul Washer messages as well. And different messages like that. And I still continue to pray. And you sent me a message, three-part series by uh, Mike Pearl. What was uh, Am I Saved? Born again, am I saved and accept you repent? And I was listening to that. I probably, I'm, I'm guessing, thinking back, I think I listened to it all in one day, but it could have been over a couple of days. But somewhere in one of those messages, I was born again. Yeah. And that's where I really emphasize now if I'm talking to people, right? So I tried so hard to be born again. It was probably just about a year long of myself striving to be born again, every night crying and praying and asking God 
into my heart and asking God to forgive me and think maybe if I repent a little bit harder, right? And then somewhere somebody explains the gospel to you so, so clearly that um, Jesus came, Jesus of God came in the flesh, being Jesus, born of a virgin, and he lived the perfect life having not once disobeyed God, having not once earned um, a punishment, he voluntarily, for me, took all of my sin that I was feeling so guilty about. Um, and not just ones I remembered, ones that maybe I forgot, ones I'll remember in five days. And not only that, ones I may commit in five years or 50 years. Every one of those sins Jesus took upon himself and he didn't enjoy this. He was in the garden of Gethsemane before and he, before that happened. And he prayed to God, if he could take this cup from him, if he would do it, he was sweating drops of blood. This was no easy task for him, but he did it anyway. Amen. And he went on the cross and took that punishment for me. All the punishment I deserve, the wages of sin and death is death, right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That blood I should have said, I should have shed. That death I should have died, Jesus did for me. And once I understood that, somewhere in the middle of that message, I understood that. And man, I just, at the end of listening to those messages, I was just so happy, you know, realizing that I'm saved, man. When did I, um, I get saved? And I think back, like, was it, was it when I prayed really hard? Like, no, no, no. And I just realized all of a sudden I got it. Like, I get it now. Amen. It was when Jesus said, it is finished, it was truly finished. There was nothing left for me to do. There was no praying for me to do. There was no going back and honoring my parents again. Like, of course, honor them. But no going to church, no reading my Bible, no repenting. The guilt I felt would do nothing. In the presence of God, that is not what God required. God required mm-hmm. the shedding of blood. And once I realized that Jesus did that for me, and I just understood that at that moment is when I was born again. Yep. And the people might have heard that last little clip if they just clipped that one part out of what you said there, no repentance, and they would say, oh, so you believe in repentance-less gospel. Absolutely not. That moment when you believe the gospel, when you got saved, you did a full 180 from trying desperately to get saved, from working, you know, and then finally, like Romans chapter four says, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And so in the Bible, New Testament Christian faith and repentance is two sides of the same coin. You know, if you are deep in sin and somebody tells you that there's a lifeboat and you turn and grab hold of this flotation device, you've just repented of whatever you were hanging on for your salvation. And you didn't think about repentance. You know, you're not trying desperately. I got to let go of this thing. I've got to try to get rid of it. Oh, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again. No, you just grab hold of this thing. By doing that, you're expressing your faith in Christ and you've repented of whatever you were hanging on to. And now when people think repentance of sins or from sins, I think they're thinking much more of the Christian duty to stop sinning, to right. put off this sin and put off that sin. That's command that Paul gives to us as Christians now, you know, stop being angry, stop lusting, stop swearing, stop lying, start working hard, you know, stop doing the stuff you used to do. But as mm-hmm. far as getting saved goes, it's, you know, you're grabbing hold of this root and you're, you know, you're, you're hanging on for dear life. And here's the, li- the lifeboat with the flotation device. All you got to do is let go. And it doesn't take someone telling you necessarily, let go, let go, let go. It's just simply, you see the option to be saved. 
you see Jesus took your place. You finally see that mm-hmm. all the sin was dealt with and you just okay. hang on to it. You're like, of course, that's the only thing I want. And so it's repentance and faith all right. in one. I had to realize, I've said this before, at that time, I didn't realize I had to repent from repenting. Yeah. It wasn't just the repenting, right? It was the repenting of trying to please God, the, the praying and all of that. As I was trying to get saved, I believe, if I look at it, um, the way I was trying to get saved, I was trying to please God through my own works, and I had to repent from that. Yes, that's exactly. a religion in itself. Yeah, I didn't think of repenting towards God, but I did. I stopped exactly like you just explained. So it wasn't a, a conscious repentance even on my part at that time, right? It just, um, it is a natural thing. When I turned from, from my works, trying to please God in my sin, and I turned towards God and I realized what he did for me, that in itself was a 180. That was repentance towards God. That's right. <clears throat> right. Man, oh man. And then there was a celebration in the soul, right? Right. And there was just an amazing time. And I think I probably called you and said, man, I got saved again. <laughs> <laughs> but this time for real. <laughs> I, I don't remember now if that was before or after Lisa and I came to see you in uh, Vagerville. But that was a real precious time to me. I think it was probably shortly after that, right? I believe so, yeah. But yeah, I mean, we went there and... Um, my wife still talks about it to this day. We have pictures of us in your trailer. I think we had three little kids at the time. Ezra was just a little baby. And uh, she went through and cleaned your house and tidied things up and threw out beer bottle caps and spit cups and who knows what all else. And uh, it's just amazing to me. I often think back to your life and like you were like this rugged, individualistic uh, bachelor, kind of messy and rough around the edges. And then you go somehow and find yourself this sweet former Amish girl. And now you got a mountain man and an Amish girl. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So that came up. That was awesome too. Right. So after that, I was just living in uh, also uh, living in victory after that. Right. Which is amazing, which just comes naturally um, being free from sin. It finally made sense to me and uh, it was no longer a trying. I now have the power to no longer do that, but. So I, I would come back to visit quite often. I'd say two to three times a year, I'd probably usually come to Ontario. But one of the years I got laid off from concrete and you and Joe were working together. You were building sunrooms. Yep. So I came up there for the winter and I worked with you guys for, I'm not sure how long it was. It was a bit. I helped doing a couple of jobs, right? Yep. And that was after salvation. That was one of the second most important times. Like, uh, I'm not sure this is a place to talk about that, but some of the things you guys brought up to me, everything made more sense. When you told me one day, you, you guys believe some interesting, strange things. But um, anyways, uh, trying to think the wheel, why this thing? Anyways, so yeah, that's when I met my wife. I went with you. I, so I was baptized um, by you. So I did have a baptism. John, John Dyke boat. actually did the baptism in Vienna and we broke some yeah. ice to get you in the water. Yeah, they break ice in the, to get me in the water. And you and John Dyke were in the water, right? I don't recall if I was, I didn't think I had been in there, but. Maybe you are, but John Dyke baptized me in the water. My wife says she was watching because they went to Vienna. Yeah. And so they all came out. Maybe it wasn't you, but Justina said she was watching. I didn't really know her at the time, but that's the winter I met her. So you guys also had a Bible school at Vienna that year. Yeah. And I went. And I already knew Justina's brothers somewhat. So Pete sold us some um, of that shed. That's when I first met him. I was out there for a while. 
Um, and yeah, at Bible school, I saw this really pretty girl. She was a little Amish. <laughs> she was no longer Amish. I'm kidding. But I saw this really pretty girl. And uh, she was happy. She was, uh, people were drawn to her. Oh, yeah. And, but see, I've been at Wheeler's quite a bit, but I never saw her there. Because when I was there, she was in Tennessee. That's right. Yeah. So I saw Justina there, and I, me and Johnny were friends. So I went and hung out with Johnny at his mom's place, and I saw her there. And um, so obviously, I just kept on seeing her over and over again. I hung out with Johnny quite a bit. At, at first, there was no attention with her. Of course, I thought she was pretty. And she was attractive because she laughed a lot. And she smiled. And um, she wasn't shy to talk. But me and Johnny hung out quite a bit. And as you know, the wheelers, everybody felt comfortable there and hung out there. And me and Justina slowly started getting to know each other a bit more. And I think you and Lisa brought it up before I even considered it. <laughs> you were convinced that I was going there to see Justina. Yeah. And that probably started a, that probably started more of a seed there. <laughs> at the time, I thought, you know, I was fairly new, new to being saved. I was learning a lot. So most of the time I was saved, I was out here by myself. So I, the the uh, time I talked to anyone who was talking to you, usually uh, um, through text or email, I think it was, maybe on the phone sometimes. But I was usually by myself. So I had a lot to learn. Mic phones. So pretty, pretty. Yeah, mic phones, right? So I wasn't really interested in, once I'm not interested in girls, but at the time I wasn't really looking for anything. I was getting, I was in my later 20s when I got saved. Yes. Far, far too late. So, but yeah, you and Lisa, I think, planted the seed. And then obviously hanging out there a little bit more, I got interested. And um, I finally did ask her mom, before I left um, Ontario, because we didn't talk that much, I asked her if I want to move back to Alberta, if I would be able to call her daughter, just to get to know her better. I didn't ask for courting or anything, and I wanted to be proper. I didn't want to overstep my boundaries. Her dad had died just, just less than a year ago. Yep. Just listen here before that. So I asked her mom if you go, okay, if I called Justina, just so we could get to know each other a bit better. And she said, Oh yeah, that'd be fine. And I think you guys were involved somewhat. And, and so we started talking a little bit when I was there. I came back and she said I hadn't, I don't remember. I thought I called her right away, but she said it was uh, a while before I called her. It was like her birthday away to tell. <laughs> I thought, man, this this jerk. But I'll go back. Actually, you and you and Lisa dropped us off at the airport with with just with Justina, right? And I told her at the airport, I said, "Well, if this, she always brings this up, I told her if we if I come back to Ontario, like I wanted to know where I was serious. I was no longer interested in dating for the fun of dating or this or that. If I come back to Ontario, meaning come back to see her, I said, are you gonna be ready to uh, marry me and move to Alberta?" <laughs> I pretty much told her that was the way it's gonna be. I remember so so many times, inside, right? My kids, to, hey? Oh, sorry, I was walking on you there a bit. My kids get a real kick out of the cowboy books. Like they'll, some of the girls will read Louis Lemoore, and they're yeah. like, at the end of the book, often he'll just turn to her and say, "Okay, let's get married." Like, yeah. oh, how romantic, right? Like the woman's waiting for this big thing, and here you just say, "When I come back, are you ready to come to Alberta?" <laughs> But that shows you a little bit who I was, right? Being uh, independent and on myself, and um, living on my own so much. My wife still gets kicked out of it too, but there's a lot I've learned since then. But uh, it took her back anyways. But anyway, I went back and I didn't call her until her birthday, apparently. And so then we talked on the phone for a bit. 
And then I came back, I flew back to Ontario and her, and I asked if I could court Justina. I think that's how it went. And so there's a whole thing there. Some people didn't want to allow it. And, um, but he was finally like her mom wasn't necessarily against it. Finally, I got agreed. They agreed that I could, um, date Justina or court her, whatever you want to call her. And then within four and a half or five months, we got married. And uh, it's just been the most amazing thing, like, since I've been married. Um, and I thought she was safe. She didn't get saved till after we were married, which is another whole story. Because she was, so, she was so ingrained in religion her whole life, right? She had always been a plain Christian, very serious Christian. You know, they were conservative, but the gospel wasn't clear to her. Yeah, so she was a child in South America, in Bolivia, three years old. So I've been very strict Mennonite. And then they left Bolivia to move to the Amish in Ontario. And then so they moved to Ontario and the New Brunswick. But either way, until she was 16 or 17, they left the Amish finally. That's all she ever knew. And then from there, they went to Vienna, which was still pretty, fairly conservative, right? So she never quite understood the gospel. So I thought she was saved at the time until we were um, married. And she, I saw her journals and I never asked her about it. She asked if I wanted to read them. Like, well, I mean, if you want me to read him, I could get to know it a little bit more about you, right? Because all we did is get to know each other over the phone. We never really saw each other that much. So I started reading him. And I was reading him more and more. I'm like, oh, my goodness, my wife is not saved. Really? Like, the things you're talking about, she struggled with it is exactly my life before I got saved. Like, my wife wasn't saved. My wife said she looked at me and she saw that. And one day she asked me, she's like, you don't think I'm saved, do you? I'm like, well, well, what do you think? Are you saved? So. She thought of before, like, well, yeah, well, I think I am. Like, oh, well, I didn't say anything about it, but I just kept on giving her the gospel over and over again. And then one day she came to me, and she was just the biggest smile I ever saw on her face. We were working together. She, where I was driving truck, and she was with me. And she told me, you know what? Last night, Tremaine Ware, remember when we were in Ontario? Tremaine oh, Ware, yes. That message? We he preached that message on blood, right? I had that on CD, and I let her and Pete Friesen listen to it. And just Tina listened to save listening to that message. Wow. That was that a good weekend. that was a good clear message, that's for sure. It was amazing. That same weekend I gave Pete Sin No More and Pete Freezing got ended up ended up getting saved listening to Sin No More. Yeah. Same weekend my wife got saved, basically. I think that's how it was. But yeah, that was an amazing time. So but ever since then, even before that, we had a good marriage. But um credits to my wife. She was obviously always uh the way she was raised, so it was to be a good wife. But we've had an amazing marriage. Um, five kids. We have five children. Yeah, the oldest is uh turning thirteen in July, and the yeah. youngest is three. Uh, we bought a. Uh, we sold our acreage in Riley. Got rid of our mortgage. We bought a uh, hundred sixty acres west of the city. I built a little cabin. That's where I'm in right now. Is our little cabin we're living oh, on. That's awesome. Um, yeah, we're, we're debt free right now. Um, that's kind of what we're at. I'm not. I haven't been out to work since August. I've been working at home, but I haven't been away to work since august so it's been coming up on uh, almost a year right man oh man i remember like even now here listening to your story and reflecting on where you were and where you came from where you now are it blows me away what god has done but i remember probably uh looking back now maybe 10 years ago uh i was thinking about man i just visited neil like 
fifth, six or eight years ago, and Neil and Pete were these messy, dirty bachelors. Their house was let in disarray, and they like they were late twenties. They were never going to get married. Neil, Pete freezing for sure. He was never going to get married. Right? He hated <laughs> the idea. And then I came back a few years later. Was it five or six years? And all of a sudden, you guys had neat and tidy homes. Your you know curtains on the windows and everything was clean. And you got two or three kids running around each. And I'm like. This is absolutely 100% God. Like absolutely. nothing else can answer for this. You spent your 20s, you know, living it, trying to find some kind of peace, some kind of whatever fulfillment. And then suddenly, just like that, both of your lives, I think he was in his 30s already when he got married. Yeah, and- oh, and I was 29 if he was 30. Oh, yeah, he's been early 30s. Yeah. Yeah. Just amazing. And then now to think back, like to think now. You're married, five kids. Your oldest is almost 13. You're living the life that you want. You're spending quality time with your wife and your children. You're working from home and working around the yard. And I mean, none of us have the perfect life by no means, right? But when the gospel penetrates that deeply and it shifts everything that you think, right? Like it, it does actually transform from the very core and depth of who you are. It makes you a different person. It's you, you keep your character, you keep your personality, but your whole perspective shifts. Absolutely. And I take no credit for that. It's like you said, it's like all of this in Jesus too, but it is something that God does in you. So I can't guarantee my life I have right now for anybody, for everybody that's right, going to get right. born again, but I can guarantee you will be a different person. Yeah. There's no way after an experience like that, um, going from deserving hell and knowing you deserve it, and there's nothing you can do about it, to being made, Bible explains it the best, to being born again, made a yes. different person. And I have sinned regretfully so when I repented of it, many times since I've been a Christian, but knowing that that sin is covered too. Amen. Just the freedom that that brings, that in itself, the freedom, having a clear conscience, the Hebrew talks, so he's a Hebrews talks about it, right? It was the same way, in a sense, the way we grew up as to the Jews are. Um, maybe we didn't actually sacrifice sheep, but always trying to do something to to relieve the guilt of sins, but knowing that those actions have to be done again continually as a, the Jews year after year. Um, you know, there's no more conscience of sins with these works not have ceased to be offered. Exactly. Right? So just that in itself will change you as a person. And um, it's just, yeah, it is a testament exactly to what, to what uh, Jesus can do and what Jesus will do in your life. And oh, um, yes. oh, I like this much better. <laughs> <laughs> I like it on you too. That's awesome. Well, I mean, I think as far as time goes, we're a little over t- the typical time, but I couldn't uh, imagine have cutting it any short. This is really fun stuff to me. I couldn't shut up. I used to never talk to anybody. And now that I have people around me, I'm used to it. I just don't, I just don't stop sometimes. No, that's awesome. Anything else you wanted to add yet? Any, you know, you're trying to create a big uh, online following. So where do people follow you at? <laughs> I, I'm not, I need to do something. So uh, we started, uh, we've been home churching for years and now we're out in Wildwood here. So we're renting the hall. Um, we do churches Sunday mornings there. Um, I always thought this is really I'm really happy with what you're doing. You've had a great influence on my life. Um, it's just, I would, I would, uh, 
yeah, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Just the way, again, not everybody won't affect everybody. People gave me the gospel before, and maybe in the same gospel you gave me, but never give up on somebody. The, the time I heard it, when I believed, it was the first time in my life I ever heard it. Not the first time in my years I've ever heard it. Yeah. Inside, right? So I'm sure many times people have told me the gospel. So don't give up on people. It might just take that one person. Um, somehow people have been saved through me, and I don't find myself a good speaker. Not through me, but through me giving them the gospel. Yeah. And I might find myself a terrible speaker, but it's just sometimes I just need to hear it slightly different. So do that. They didn't. Dan didn't give up on me. People didn't give up on me. Just if you know those the family members or friends, don't don't stop. Amen. Um, you just need to hear it differently, maybe. Yeah, because I mean, like like I said before, if you look at it from a purely Mennonite perspective, me and most of my brothers, we all did what was re- what was told to us, right? We got married at 19, 20, 21 years old, and we settled no. down and did the right stuff. You, like, there wasn't much hope for you. You had done too many bad things, and you were now an old bachelor living a life of sin, perhaps, right? So mm-hmm. it almost seems like, well, I'll, I'll witness to the other people that he doesn't have a whole lot of opportunity. Right. But yeah. I don't, I don't I don't think of myself back then as not giving up on you. I didn't really maybe even consider it that much, but I'm glad that from your perspective, you didn't think I had. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just the way it was your new life. You didn't, uh, if you talked to me, you talked to me like a person, but being who you were, Jesus was just part of your conversation. Right. So that, and that's what I needed. I didn't need somebody. Um, and some people might get saved on street corner, but I didn't need somebody telling me I was bad. I knew I was bad. I mean, that's why I sabotaged all my relationships before that. Like I didn't deserve something good. Right. Yeah. So I knew that. But, yeah. I think um, probably, different. probably 99% of people that get saved, it's from a personal interaction, not really usually a street corner stuff that happens and I'm glad for it, but yeah. people need to, to be friends. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. So again, thank you very much for having me. Thank um, you for coming on. That's a real fun you. story. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you again. Right on. So happy with the kids and uh, the church. Will do. You do the same for us. All right. Thank you.